0: Um, this is the third Sunday of Lent, and we're kind of loosely doing some Lenten messages. And we have been trying over the last couple of weeks to see if we can re-understand, or, or redefine, reimagine, reconceptualize uh, Lent as not just a time of denial, giving up in a negative sense, you know, kind of legally or or mechanistically giving something up in order to get something back, but a clearing out, a clearing away of things that distract. And so it's really a positive sense of leaning further into presence, leaning in further into moment by clearing away the things that would get between us and everything that's real, everything that's right here and right now. So we've been trying to do that, and so we're going to take another kind of sideways journey into that space and that Linton space as well. I was turning the channels Um, last week and happened across Chariots of Fire and uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen this movie or remember this movie 1981 so if you can remember it when it's new you're as old as I am you see um and uh, it won uh, Best Picture Academy Award, I think it won Best Original Screenplay, and it was a pretty celebrated movie. And I'd really forgotten about it, but I, I, I tuned in, I was probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes into it, but uh, I got hooked right away. And I think maybe my spirit needed a little bit of inspiration, and I certainly got it from this movie. Um, if you recall, or if you don't recall, it's it's the story of, of the of two runners. Basically, it centers on two runners, um, both uh, British, but one actually is British. He's a, uh, he's British and he's Jewish. Okay, Harold Abramson, and it's a true story. These are these are true characters, and the screenplay largely follows history with some a few liberties. The other is Eric Little, and he was Scottish and he was staunchly Christian. He was also the son of of missionaries, uh, uh, missionaries who had gone to China. And it's the story of the two of them as they're preparing for the 1924 Olympics. Both of them are runners, and both of them are very fast. But the contrast between them is so striking and so stark. And it's instructive for us, I think, right now as we're trying to approach Lent. Harold Abraham, I forget what I said his name was, but it was Harold Abrahams, he was a, a British Jew, and he'd suffered a lot at the hands of the prejudice of that time. Remember, this is nearly 100 years ago uh, in Britain. So he'd suffered a lot of prejudice against his, his nationality and against his faith. And he had a lot of bitterness. He's like a bald fist. You know, he, he's, he's bitter, he's angry, and he uses his running as a tool for revenge. He uses his running almost as a weapon. Because he's going to prove himself, he says at one point he's going to run all these guys into the ground, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to show what he can do, you know, as a person, as a Jew, as if he can prove himself, as if he can gain the respect that uh, that he doesn't have at this point. And everything is about winning. He is running to win. In fact, at one point he says, "If I can't win, I won't run." And the person he's talking to says, "If you won't run, you can't win." <laughs> and and but that's it. When he does lose, it's devastating to him. He is obsessed. He is just focused so much on this. And even as an amateur, he hires a professional trainer to prepare him for the Olympics. And they watch him him going through all of these antics. And the the school comes down on him for hiring a professional when he's supposed to be an amateur. But he blows them off. He's just single-mindedly driven, obsessed to win these games. And that is contrasted with Eric Little. Eric Little was born to born in China to missionary parents there, Scottish missionaries. And uh, he came back to go to school, and he had gone to school in London. Then he was at the uh, University of Edinburgh. And as he's preparing for the Olympics, he is running into conflict with his sister. His sister Jenny is absolutely... Obsessed that he needs to be a missionary and that his running is taking his time away from that preparation and that work and getting back to China to continue the real work. And so Eric finds himself kind of sandwiched between Harold and Jenny, who in a very real way are the same person. They're just on opposite sides of the fence. They both have an agenda. They are both looking for every moment to be a launching pad into the outcome that they're seeking, whether it's winning the games for those reasons or whether it's getting back to do God's work in China. But you see this conflict brewing between him and his sister as he is spending time preparing for the games. And it comes to a head when he finally just takes her. And I want to read this so that I get this right. He says, Jenny, you've got to understand. I should have Bob read this because he'd do the accent right. <laughs> you've got to understand. He says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Oh, when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt and to win is to honor him to win is to honor him see there 's a whole different mode of operation that little brings to to the games and to his to his sport. He is feeling god 's pleasure when he runs because God made him fast for this purpose. And to win is going to be to honor him, not to prove something for himself, not as revenge against the wrongs that were done to him, but just to lose himself in the experience. And it's almost like whatever comes. you know, He doesn't say that. He's working hard. He's training too, on his own, but he's training too. But there's a whole different character to what he's doing and how he's doing it. The real Eric Little was written about by The Guardian, and they said in this one article, he is the ugliest runner to ever win the Olympic Games. Now, what they meant that was not ugly in appearance. It was his running style. He had the weirdest running style, and, and the actor kind of gets that you know on, on, the, on the screen, but when he was running flat out he 'd tilt his head completely back, and his mouth was open like an anchovy going through those you know, the, the water, and his arms were clawing at the air and that 's how he ran flat out and it was the most unorthodox ugly style, ugliest style you could imagine and, uh, and Of course, the Americans and others were laughing at him, ridiculing him for that style and even Harold Abraham said, Hey, it may be unorthodox, but he gets there. <laughs> there was a great story that, that I read as I was just reading more about the real Eric Little um, when he was doing a 440-meter race in Glasgow. And, um, and he was taking the, the last lap, and he was way behind uh, the leaders. And there was a visitor in the stands who was, who was sitting next to a local. And he said, Wow, he's, he's going to be hard-pressed to win this race. There's probably no way he's going to do that. And the local just said, how <laughs> I mean, you get this? One, his head no back yet. <laughs> How would I say that in, in Scottish? His head not back yet. <laughs> and right as he says that, Little throws his head back, opens his mouth, and he just like finds another gear. It is just, and, and he wins that race. There was something about when he tilted his head back, he was in another zone. He was in God's presence. He, you just know that. You know, when you watch him run, he doesn't care what he looks like. He doesn't care who's laughing about it. He is completely immersed and, and abandoned to this act of feeling God's pleasure as he runs. It's, it's just, it's so it's so striking because it's so different from the way we normally process things. As he's approaching the, the 1924 Olympics, he realizes that his main heat, his 100-meter his race that he's favor at, is going to be run on a Sunday. That's the Sabbath. He refuses to run. And everybody is pressuring him, trying to get him to run this race. It's the Olympics, for crying out loud. God will understand. And he says, no, I won't do it. So he's swapped out, and he runs the 400-meter, which he was not that good at, right? The 400-meter, but at least it's not on Sunday. And this hits the papers, and, and everybody knows about Eric Little and his staunch, his staunch decision to honor the Sabbath and honor what he was all about. You know, it, it's it's an amazing thing. And as he is approaching in the movie now, he's approaching the uh, the start of the four hundred meter race in the in the Olympics. All of the competitors, all of the field, they're stretching and they're, you know, they're putting their hands out here and bringing their knees up and running in place and getting all warmed up. He's got his sport coat on over his running shorts. And he's just walking up and down and introducing himself to each one of his competitors and shaking their hand and wishing them good luck in the race. And they're looking at him like, what in the world? And watch him go by. He's completely relaxed. He is just in his space. Because he's going to feel God's pleasure when he runs. And of course, he wins that thing. And not only did he win that thing, he set a record, an Olympic record and a UK record that lasted for 23 years or something like that. You know, It's amazing what we can do when we're feeling God's pleasure rather than pushing, pushing, pushing. But after he won the gold and after he graduated from the University of Edinburgh, he immediately went back to China in 1925. And I wanted to read you a little bit because this is what really struck me. And this, of course, is after the movie ends and the credit rolls. But he was in China for 25 years, from 1925 until 1945, and he died there in an internment camp, Japanese internment camp. But just listen to a little bit About the quality of this man in his service in China? While he's best known for his athletics, Little's true passion was found in his missionary work. Little used his athletic experience to train boys in a number of different sports. One of his many responsibilities was that of a superintendent of the Sunday school at Union Church, where his father was a pastor. During his first furlough for missionary work in 1932, he was ordained a minister of religion. On his return to China, he married Florence Mackenzie of Canadian missionary parentage in Tianjin in 1934. The couple had three daughters, the last of, him, last of whom he would not live to see. In 1941, life in China had become so dangerous because of Japanese aggression that the British government advised British nationals to leave. Florence, who was pregnant, and the children left for Canada to stay with her family when Little accepted a position at a rural mission station in Zhaozhang, which served the poor. He joined his brother Rob, who was a doctor there. The station was severely short of help, and the missionaries there were exhausted. A constant stream of locals came at all hours for medical treatment. Little arrived at the station in time to relieve his brother, who was ill and needing to go on furlough. Little suffered many hardships himself at the mission. As fighting between the Chinese Eighth Route Army and invading Japanese reached Zhaozhang, the Japanese took over the mission station and Little returned to Tianjin. In 1943, he was interned at the Weixin internment camp. Little became a leader and organizer at the camp, but food, medicine, and other supplies were scarce. There were many cliques in the camp, And when some rich businessmen managed to smuggle in some eggs, (laughs) Little shamed them into sharing them with everyone. While fellow missionaries formed cliques, moralized and acted selfishly, Little busied himself by helping the elderly, teaching Bible classes at the camp school, arranging games, and teaching science to the children, who referred to him as Uncle Eric It was also claimed that one Sunday, Little refereed a hockey match to stop fighting amongst the players, as he was trusted not to take sides. One of his fellow internees later wrote a book about his experiences in the camp and described Little as the finest Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet. In all the time in the camp, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. Langdon Gilkey, who also survived the camp and became a prominent theologian in his Native America, said of Little, quote, Often in an evening I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary and interested, pouring all of himself into his effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life, and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. In his last letter to his wife, written on the day he died, Little wrote of suffering a nervous breakdown due to overwork. He actually had an inoperable brain tumor. Overwork and malnourishment may have hastened his death. Little died on 21st February 1945, five months before the liberation of China. Langdon Gilkey later wrote, the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. And according to a fellow missionary, Little's last words were, it's complete surrender. It's complete surrender. In reference to how he had given his life to God. This is amazing to me. How did he do that? How did he remain so simple in his approach to life? So good-natured in his approach to life. So positive, so present to everyone that he was with. No matter what occurred, no matter what circumstances he found himself in, to his last breath, he was who he was, what did he know that we don 't How was he able to do this now I was talking to a friend this last week, and he 's involved in a, in a major legal battle that has just been sapping everything that he 's got, both intellectually and physically, everything that 's going on. And he was saying, You know what? It's getting really hard for me to meditate. It's hard for me to pray. And so we commiserated a bit because I'm having the same experience. You know, I don't have the problems he's got, but I've got this build out going on and I've got my head so full of details right now that it's just so hard to quiet it down. It is so hard to stay in this moment. When you are dealing with preparation for the Olympics, if you're dealing with a legal battle, if you're dealing with a project management, that everything is focused on the outcome. Everything is focused out there. Everything you're doing so urgently with with risk involved is pointing out there. How hard is it to be here right now? If you're interned in a work camp and you're not getting the food that you need, you're not getting the medical attention you need, and there's a war going on, how does that focus you on the outcome? When your wife has gone home pregnant to Canada and you're staying in China, in that camp, how do you keep your thoughts planted where your feet are? How can you see the the youth that you're working with as the most important people in your life when you don't know what's going on with your wife and your unborn child, not to mention your other two? How do you do that? How do any of us do that? And all of us have had this experience. We all know that there's times when we're so focused on an outcome, working so hard, striving so hard to get something done, that we can't stay here. Everything is all about that outcome. How do we come back? How do we reorganize our life so that things actually change? There is a balance that I think little found between, obviously, between doing and being. His ability to work hard for a future, but at the same time to be stay present. This was his genius. This was what he was able to do. Whether there was a pressure of the race, he stayed present to and had a concern for his competitors, for their well-being, wishing them the best of luck, even at his own expense. In the middle of, of... his internment experience in the middle of that work in China, he always stayed present to and concerned for those that he was right in front of and who he was helping at the moment. Those cruel conditions didn't make a dent in his ability to create community, to be the engine of community in that space. I think that Little must have realized two insights that I'm trying to bring down into my own life, where I can use them. But amazingly, he got these insights in it by his early twenties. Who does that? <laughs> when you were, I don't know about you, but I go back to my early twenties, and I didn't have a clue about anything. You know, I was just making mistakes left and right, tearing up relationships in the pavement left and right. And by his early twenties, he already had the the gravitas. You know, he had this ability to to be this present. So there are two insights I think he had, and the first one is this. He was able to recognize the task within the task. And I want to read a little bit from Richard Rohr. Any of you have been following his, um, his meditations, he's, he's been on this. But this is an amalgam of the whole week. And I just want to try to get this idea of the task within the task and what I think that little found. Uh, Richard Rohr writes, Religion and various models of human development seem to suggest that there are two major tasks For each human life, the first task is to build a strong container or identity. And the second is to find the contents that the container was meant to hold. The first task we take for granted as the very purpose of life. This does not mean we do it well, but because we're so focused on it, we may not even attempt the second task. During the first half of life, we invest so much of our blood and sweat and eggs and sperm and tears and years that we often cannot imagine that there is a second task, or that anything more could be expected of us. It takes much longer to discover the task within the task, as I like to call it, what we are really doing when we are doing what we're doing. You get that? What are we really doing when we're doing what we're doing? Remember wax on, wax off? What's he really doing as he's waxing the cars? He's learning to fight. He's learning karate. He's learning the pure moves. But there's a task within the task that he doesn't see until later. Think about Little. Running the race. He saw through to the task within the task, which was feeling God's pleasure as he ran. Not just running to win. When he was teaching children It wasn't just that they got factoids in their heads. It was the connection. It was the relationship that was being developed. It was the worldview that these children were developing when they realized that someone actually cared and would risk something of themselves to be present to them in that way. The image of him just playing chess or bending over a model boat, anything that he could do with those kids to further this relationship, it was... Our square dance. It's like it didn't matter what the task was, whether he's running in the Olympics or if he's playing chess in internment camp with Chinese boys. It's all the same to him because he's seen the task within the task. The outer task, no matter how spectacular, lofty, s- celebrated, or how invisible. Doesn't matter because he's seeing the interior task. He's seeing through the task to the deeper meaning within it. And so he could apply himself equally to whatever he did because he was connected to that. Back to Roar. It takes so much longer to discover the task within the task, what we are really doing when we are doing what we are doing. We had to do all the wanting and the trying and the achieving and the self-promoting and the accomplishing in the first half of life, but in the second half of life we start to understand that life is not only about doing, it's about being. Most often we don't pay attention to this inner task until we've had some kind of fall or failure in our outer tasks. If the agenda of the first half of life is social, Okay, the agenda of the first half of life is social, meeting the demands and expectations of our circumstances and what they ask of us. Then the questions of the second half of life are spiritual, addressing the larger issue of meaning. The psychology of the first half is driven by the fantasy of acquisition, gaining ego strength to deal with separation, separating from the overt domination of parents, acquiring a standing in the world. But then the second half of life asks of us and ultimately demands relinquishment. Acquisition, relinquishment. Relinquishment of identification with property, roles, status, provisional identities, which will, in the end, be experienced as a newfound and hitherto unknown abundance. There's the paradox there. Acquisition, versus relinquishment. God's will, we've always talked about in here, I've always talked about in here, as not a what, but a how. Think of it in these terms right now. You know, God's will is not a what, not the tasks of the first half of life, not those outer details, but it's the how, the meaning of the second half of life, the way that we do what we do, that brings the meaning, that allows us to see the connection that's happening underneath the task allows us to feel God's pleasure when we're doing it, when we're moving through. This is, I think, has to be, whether he understood it cognitively this way, this has to be where he was going, that he could do what he did. Abraham's was a first half of life stand-in, first half of life symbol, right? The race and winning was everything to him. It was all of his identity. Jenny is a first half of life symbol as well. Her religious duty was everything, and she was completely identified with that, and she wanted her brother to be identified with it as well. But little is a second half of life metaphor, second half of life symbol. The race, just feeling God's presence, honoring God, Religious duty for him is not an obligation. It's a passion for leaving people better than he found them, whether they're on the track or whether they're in China in an internment camp. And by seeing through those outer tasks to the inner task of God's will, how God's will works, Little found, I think, his second insight. And for me, that's radical acceptance. Radical acceptance. If you think about it, the first half of life is about change. We're changing everything because we, either as children, as young adults, as adolescents, feel that we're not enough. We've been told that we're not enough. We've been told that we don't measure up. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough stuff. We don't have the standing that we need in life. We don't feel secure. And so we have to change. We have to continue to change until... We can acquire enough stuff that will bring us into what we hope is going to be that sense of fulfillment, that sense of final security. But there never is enough to fill that hole, ever. And if you turn the corner into the second half of life, if you finally let that fall for a second, what you find is that the second half of life is about acceptance, that each moment and we in it are just enough if we will let them be. That each moment and we in it are a perfect combination if we will let them be. And even as we keep working for change, even as we keep working for the things that we need in life for us or for our children, we can accept right here and right now where we are and who we are. I mean, if you really think about it, this is Jesus' message. This is what what is the good news? if not the ultimate expression of a love that is so complete, that is so unconditional, that we are okay right here, right now, that we are completely accepted, that we are completely loved right here and right now. Don't need to change anything to be that. But at the same time, once we do rest in that acceptance, rest in that ultimate love from God, then transformation becomes possible. The change becomes possible. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Acceptance and transformation work together in a way that we didn't understand. This idea of acceptance and change has become the hallmark of a a new psychological you know, therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. And I wanted to read just a little definition of how they define radical acceptance and see if we can put a little bit finer point on this. Radical acceptance means complete and total acceptance that permeates every part of your being. It's more than an intellectual task. It's always more than an intellectual task. Radical acceptance refers to a specific set of practices and techniques that you can use to get the message through in a complete way that you are accepted. When you radically accept a painful reality, your thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, and attitude all shift to make room for the true details of what happened to you earlier in your life and for fully expressing your present reality. This shift creates the opportunity and ability for change. As Carl Rogers once said, listen to this, the curious paradox is when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Think about that. When I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Radical acceptance is not just a concept that psychologists talk to each other about. It's a practice that many people are engaged in right now. To practice radical acceptance, we need to accept what is, realize what we can control and what we can't, look at our situation from a non judgmental perspective, acknowledge the facts of our situation, stop fighting reality, and learn how to live in the present moment despite our pain. All of those. The harder we try to change, the more we stay the same think about that for a second the harder we try to stay change the more we stay the same why because the tools that we're using for change are reinforcing over and over that we are not enough right now the means we use must match the ends that we seek If we keep using tools of incompletion, tools of unworthiness, to change into worthiness, we're never going to get there. Think of Abraham's and Jenny, those two. The harder that they tried, through their own efforts, through running, through religious duty, to get where they wanted to go, the more that they stayed the same. Until we accept where we are, we can't have the change. If you take a look at Nehemiah, I think it's fascinating that this principle is in the Old Testament. It's all through the Bible, but especially in something like the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. At Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 8, what's the context here? Well, the people have come back from exile in Babylon. Because of their apostasy, because of their lack of faith, because they didn't listen to the prophets, the Babylonians came in, conquered them, and drugged them off into exile, into Babylon. Fifty years later, the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians, and the Persians let them come back. And so Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, and Nehemiah rebuilds the city walls around the temple. And so as the walls have been completed, they gather all the people together in the in the court of the city, and they read them the law. And they're reading it in Hebrew. And you notice this first line, they read from the book of the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Why did they have to translate Because the people came back from Babylon speaking Aramaic instead of Hebrew. The Hebrew, what was was written, the law was written in Hebrew, they read it in Hebrew, and then they had to translate it so the people would understand. They lost so much in this process. They lost so much. They lost their city. They lost their temple. They lost their homeland. They lost their language. And now they're coming back. And then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. I think I missed something there. Yeah, this day do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Why were the people weeping? Because they didn't keep the law. Because they didn't listen to the prophets. Because they brought on themselves the destruction that was foretold to them if they kept on the path that they were going. They brought the exile on themselves. They failed God. They failed themselves. They failed their family. For all I know, they failed their posterity. And they're looking at themselves right now as not good enough. As a broken people. It is said that when the people saw the second temple that Zerubbabel built, they wept because it couldn't compare at all to the first temple of Solomon. And so even as things were being rebuilt, they were just a shadow of what they were before. And so there is shame. There is regret. These are a people who are locked in the past, a past that they can't change, but they also can't escape from either, they think. They're locked in their sin and their understanding of their sin. And they can't accept the present conditions in which they find themselves. And this is where Nehemiah steps in. And this is the genius of Nehemiah and the genius of Little and the genius of Jesus and the genius of our God. And he says, don't grieve. Eat and celebrate. Celebrate this day. Celebrate right now. You can't change the past. But you can accept that the Lord's joy is undiminished even now. Even as you stand in the rubble, even as you stand in the shadow of, of, of what was, the Lord's joy is undiminished, except that the Lord still loves you, carries you today, as He always has. And let the Lord's joy be our strength. When we have none Let the Lord's joy be our strength. Don't grieve. Move back into the present. Let the past be the past. How does Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes 9? Pretty similarly. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. God has already accepted your works. God's already approved your works. Now go enjoy them. This doesn't require change right now. It just requires immersion. Let your clothes be white all the time and let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. See the immediacy of it? See where he's going? But there's one little detail here that I think is worth noting where he says right there, enjoy life with the woman whom you love I know it's a little sexist there. How about enjoy life with the man that you love? All the days of your fleeting life. That word fleeting in Hebrew is habel. You know what habel is? Habel everywhere else is translated as vanity in, in Ecclesiastes. Everything is vanity. And you know what vanity what this word really means originally was just a vapor or a breath. It meant something that was insubstantial. It meant something that was transitory. It meant something that, that uh, was here and that was gone and it was unsatisfying. It meant that it was utterly pointless, meaningless, worthless. Now read that sentence again and see how does that change things. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your meaningless life which he has given you under the sun. What in the world is Solomon talking about? Our meaningless, pointless, worthless life that God has given us. See what the whole book is about and what Solomon has understood is that all the tasks that he set himself to, whether they were civic works, whether they were conquests, whether it was wisdom itself, was vanity. It was worthless. It was the outer task and until and unless he and every one of us can see through the worthlessness, the meaninglessness of that outer task into the inner task, then this life is worthless. This life is meaningless. Of course it's not. But it's meaningless until the moment that we see through the meaningless of the doing That winning a race is meaningless until we feel God's presence while we run. That missionary work in China is meaningless until we fall in love with the faces that are right in front of us and we feel God's pleasure as we work. See, Lent is this time to formally try to relinquish our first-half ideas, our first-half concepts, our first-half attitudes, to give them up. But even here, anything that we deny ourselves, anything that we fast is also meaningless until we break through. How does Jesus put it at Matthew 6? Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Lenten fasting, any fasting, anything that we do of a religious duty or a religious obligation is meaningless in and of itself. Until the moment it's not a task anymore. Until the moment it's not an obligation anymore. It's not a denial, a restriction anymore until the moment that we just feel God's pleasure in the running. And at that moment, it means everything. To see through even our religious tasks and duties that either we set for ourselves or are set from the outside and move into that radical acceptance of understanding this duty isn't going to make me worthwhile. This duty isn't going to make me loved. I'm already that. And if I keep trying through this task, To be accepted, I can't change. But the moment that I realize I am accepted, I already have. This is how we need to turn this around. You know? See through that task. And realizing that either having or having not is what is really meaningless in life. Having, having not. We put so much focus on that. But in the having not, in the clearing out that we can do, we can finally begin to experience the acceptance of what remains when we take all that stuff out of the picture. Because when all we have acquired is gone, all that's left is what's true. That's what this way of Jesus is all about. When everything that we think is important is displaced, what is left is what is true, and the truth makes us free to be what we already are, completely loved sons and daughters of our God. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for loving us. Thank you for accepting us completely. As, as imperfect as we are, as broken as we are, as regretful as we often are, thank you for just loving us exactly as we are. And now help us to be able to see that acceptance on your part that will allow us to radically accept the gift that's being offered, the moment that we find ourselves in, so that we can participate and, and run with you. We want to run with you, Lord. Help us to feel your pleasure in everything that we do and to let go of the anxiety and let go of the drive of trying to get somewhere we already are and working just as hard with just as much attention to detail. Feel your pleasure in the doing. That's what we need. That's what we want, Father. So thank you for guiding us, Lord, and thank you for loving us. Never let us forget we can only do this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody, listen.